Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. We've been off the live streams for a little while. Time to get back in the game and continue a little bit with what we talked about on the future of Duncan Egg and our Blackfire and Bloodraven content. Basically, an offshoot of some of those things, maybe a an important chapter in Westerosi history that's not that long ago. We're discussing an event that was hmm, 65 years before the start of the book, so about 67, 68 years away now. Uh, it's called the Peak Uprising, and it wasn't the event so much that was important, but who died there? It was the death of King Makar, but not just him, and that caused all sorts of problems for the realm and a lot of characters that we're familiar with. Makar's realm, uh, rather, reign, was also very interesting and has a lot of unusual parallels to what's going on in the current story. It was set up very early in the story, uh, meaning it was mentioned early in the Game of Thrones, so, you know, George considered it important pretty early on. And to discuss all these great topics and a lot more, we have brought back returning guest Stephen Atwell, who is are one of our main men when talking about this type of stuff, these topics, and all related topics. Welcome back, Stephen. Good to have you. Thank you. Good to be back. Right on. So what have you been doing over at Race for the Iron Throne or and or any other projects you want to mention? This is a good time to do it. We'd love to hear about it. Uh, I just uh, did the uh, Purple Wedding. Ooh, Second longest chapter in all of the books, or third longest, I forget. One of the longest ones, and a very important. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So you all, you all will want to check that out. Uh, lots of analysis on the Purple Wedding. Good to check that out for sure and see what Stephen has to say. Also want to shout out Nina, whose uh, notes and thoughts are in our episode, as usual. Not a surprise to hear that, I'm sure, for most of you. Uh, over on goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's Allie with one L. She's been taking some really interesting questions. That's a regular feature she has over there, getting asks and, and responding in great detail with thoroughness, as you would expect. For example, a what-if question was asked recently about what if Edmure had been fostered by Ned? That'd be kind of interesting because their families are already connected on some levels. Also, she's asked about what kind of titles were used prior to the conquest? It couldn't have just been the same things like High Lord and obviously they were kings, but what will you call, say, the Prince of the Vale? What was the name of that? Surely they had an official title. George hasn't given those. So it's kind of fun to play around with that idea and see what's out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to start off, just a few basics, and then we'll get right to it. I'm calling this, or we're calling this sort of a side effect of the Blackfire Rebellions. We don't actually know that for sure. It just seems really likely, given the Peaks were super involved in all the Blackfire Rebellions and lots of other shenanigans throughout Westerosi history. They're not exactly important these days, but they were for a long time. A couple of other themes like how honor, how following the rules can actually be a recipe for disaster when the rules are not well made in the first place, that is. Good rules are good to follow. An honor leading to needless death. For example, in this one, they held out this siege for honor, right? The, the peaks had lost, basically, but they kept holding out. And then the king was killed, and then everyone gets killed. So it's... All these things could have been avoided. <laughs> That's one of the things we'll be talking about. And because all those people were killed, well, it caused a bunch of success and crises, not just at the Iron Throne, but in other major houses. And that's really important. The trouble of terrible heirs comes up here as well. It's part of it's one of the succession crises. It's a style of succession crises, we can say. And we're going to finish off with parallels to Stannis, including ideas on his death, 
Uh, Steven and I have talked about this before, but not really in an episode. So this will be fun. We'll get to throw a few parallels and some uh, theories about what's coming. Steven, what is your kind of overview? What are your, do you have your basic headcanon on what really happened at the Peak Rebellion? I mean, it's such a shadowy event. Like I said at the beginning, it's more about who died than what happened. But just as an overview. Yeah, it seems to have been uh, a failed attempt to provoke a fourth Blackfire Rebellion ahead of schedule. Three years before the actual fourth Blackfire Rebellion, in case that wasn't clear to y'all. And there's some possibility, I mean, I've, I've theorized that it might have been a sort of a targeted assassination attempt on Nacar as an attempt to spur a succession crisis. I definitely like that theory too. And it's in our list of things to talk about because, you know, folks, if you think about it, Makar, well, you might be like, well, how do you kill a warrior king out in the field? Isn't that harder? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be easy in any case, <laughs> but this is a guy surrounded by Kingsguard and the Raven's Teeth. Remember how the rumors are, how locked down the Red Keep was? That was in Ares's time, but I'm, I'm sure Makar probably appreciated tight security too. So, yeah, like how, how else would you do something like that? So I, I like that idea. Let's take a few basics about the reign of Makar to sort of set some of these things up and get uh, lay out some groundwork here. He was the 14th king, Makar was. He was. His brother Ares was the 13th king. That's, of course, Ares I, not the Mad King, obviously. He was the fourth son of Daron the Good, who was the 12th king, and so thus the grandson of the infamous Aegon the Unworthy, who was the 11th king. Now, he wasn't really like any of them. <laughs> He's a little bit like Aegon the Unworthy in the, in the realm was worried about the succession. But personality-wise, no, not even a little bit, and, and not really much like the other guys either. Here's a quick quote. The chief issue of Makar's reign was the question of his heirs. He had a number of sons and daughters, but there were those who had reason to doubt their fitness to rule. Okay, is that an understatement or no? I mean, we're talking Aryan bright flame, Daron the drunkard. What do you mean reason to doubt their fitness to rule? That sounds like a big understatement, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I think this was a circumstance where the personal qualities of the king were overshadowed by the personal qualities of his heirs. Mm. That's uh, yet one, one of many things that reminds us of Stannis, I suppose, although Stannis doesn't have heirs so much as, nothing's wrong with Shireen, but she doesn't strike you as necessarily a great leader. Doesn't necessarily have that personality. She's a good kid. She's smart. But I don't know about king-queen material. You know, maybe it's a little early to say, given her age, but definitely Arian and Daron and a maester aren't king material. And Egg turned out to be a pretty good king, at least from the perspective of most readers. But, you know, it's kind of like that TV show, Everyone Hates Chris or Everyone Hates Raymond. Everyone or everyone loves Raymond. They don't like Egg, but he was very unpopular. So even though we think he's good, we have to keep that in mind that the rest of the realm wasn't so excited about the possibility of him being that. And we have a little timeline wonkiness here, don't we? There's not, it's not quite clear when certain characters died. We have Makar's realm starting in 221. At some point, Daron died, and then Arian became the heir. Now, if we go with Nina's thinking here, Daron marries Kiera around 219, and that's Kiera of Tyrosh, the same Kiera who married a Valar, Baylor's uh, mm -hmm. son. So this was like a remarriage situation. Daron and Kiera did have a child, but she was simple-minded. And you know how Westeros is about 
putting women on the throne, so they weren't excited about that either. So we're not sure if Daron died later in Makar's reign or early, but it kind of makes sense that it would be midway through because Arian married Daenora around the middle of Makar's reign. Daenora was the third child of Rhaegel and his Aaron wife. I think that was Alice Aaron. And so you have a first cousin marriage set up here. And with that, well, it looked like a royal marriage. It looked like the line that would continue. You've got two members of two branches of the ruling family united. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, and we don't know what kind of person she was. But then all of a sudden, Arian dies in 232. And instead of a the type of succession crisis where people are worried about that guy's going to rule us. I'm, you know, you're not excited about Joffrey taking over. You're not excited about certain awful people taking the reins. But what about when it goes from that to just, well, who's it going to be? So, Stephen, let's talk about that for a minute. What's the difference from the realm's perspective when they're worried about who the ruler is going to be because he's a terrible person versus when they just don't know at all who it's going to be and there's lots of possibilities, which might mean civil war. So yeah, kind of damned either way, huh? Yeah, and in some ways, the the latter is worse. That you know, with someone that is unpopular, they're they're bad, but at least they're a known quantity. When you're facing the prospect of an infant king and a very long regency, that just is as close as you come to pure chaos. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. So this is kind of a dysfunctional family. I, I like to mention the show Succession because it's an HBO show. I actually haven't seen it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know much about it, but it seems like the kind of thing we're talking about where you've got someone who's pretty capable, but the people that he's got to pass it down to are not. Maybe they're capable or it's maybe it's not their capacity that's in question, although it is in some cases. It's their personality. It's their ethics. Some of them are just bad people. I'm not sure that's an issue in Succession, but it would be, you know, in a general scenario of, of this type. And it's not the kind of thing that we think about as normal people. We think about rent and jobs and family. People like us, do we think about who am I going to pass my great wealth on to? I'm not worried about who I'm passing my company or my country on to. I mean, it's a real thing, but most of us don't have that issue to think about. But it is really important with a, king, with a kingdom. I mean, like you said, it's arguably worse to have an uncertain succession than a bad king. Because let's look at what happened with Ares. Ares was a bad king, but most of the common folk didn't care. He didn't bother them. He didn't torture them. He didn't burn them. He didn't, to, from their perspective, he, was, he could have been a lot worse. He wasn't Magor, because Magor was actually out there murdering peasants all the time. But Ares wasn't. He was mostly murdering other lords. <laughs> so these things are weird. It's hard to think about Ares as being less of a bad guy, but in this type of scenario... You might rather have Ares than Joffrey, for example. They're both terrible, but Joffrey actually picks on, you know, as far as we know, he was more about, more of a bully, like picking on people who couldn't help themselves. I don't think Ares cared about that so much. I think he picked on, he was more paranoid about other powerful people. Does that register with you or did you, would you look at it a little differently? Um, I mean, Joffrey, Joffrey certainly targeted violence at the small folk. But it was mostly the small folk of King's Landing. Yeah, that's true. So as long as you weren't in the capital, you know, he was very unpopular with the small folk of the capital. That's true. You know, hence hence the, the King's Landing riot. 
But outside the Capitol, he didn't really negatively affect, you know, except for the the war that was going on. Yeah. You know, he wasn't directly causing uh, much harm to the small folk. Aaron Brightflame, I think, could have gone either way. Depend, you know, we certainly saw with Tanzel Tutal that he he was perfectly willing to exercise violence against the small folk, but it seemed relatively targeted at singers and, you know, other people. He may have done things that led to war, but he wasn't out to start wars. You know, he's just kind of stupid and cruel. And if you can contain that, well, there, like you said, it could it could be a lot worse. It's obviously not what you aim for, but <laughs> and that brings us on to another related topic. It's it's ironic that one of the difficult one of the ways this is difficult are the the people who've thought about this the most are some of the worst characters we've we've seen. Ruth Bolton, of all people, describes this difficulty. And we're not inclined to take advice from Ruth Bolton, but every once in a while, you know, even the worst people, it's like uh, that thing on the internet, you know, the worst people, the worst person you know has a great take. You know, <laughs> so, And that's, here's an example of that. R- when Ruth says something like, boy lords are the bane of any house. I mean, he's not wrong. He's basically saying teenagers aren't fit to run massive, complex organizations involving huge amounts of property and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Yeah. Sure, hard to argue with that. Roos isn't wrong. But then uh, he points out this conundrum. It gets a little more awkward, and that's where we're getting into parallels with Makar. I forbade it, but Domeric was a man grown and thought that he knew better than his father. Now his bones lie beneath the dread fort with the bones of his brothers, who died still in the cradle, and I am left with Ramsay. Tell me, my lord, if the kinslayer is accursed, what is a father to do when one son slays another? The question frightened him. Yeah, it's awkward for Theon, too, clearly. I mean, it is a frightening question. It is kind of a, a tough question. But it's also sneaky because Theon knows from history that Greyjoy brothers kill each other from time to time. But he doesn't know how true it is in current times. His own uncle is running around killing all sorts of brothers. Are you supp- So, Roos's question doesn't have, isn't actually given a good answer here. What are you supposed to do to an heir that is cursed by the gods according to the own laws of your own culture? What is Rue supposed to do about that? I don't know. There isn't a good answer. Exile isn't necessarily going to work. I mean, people come back. I mean, the Blackfires did exactly that. Um, they weren't exactly exiled. They ran away. But it's the same difference. You know, if you, if you, if, if you leave them alive, they can come back with armies or dragon horns. <laughs> so what, what do you think, Stephen? Like, in the real world... Is it just, it's just a constant problem, isn't it? Is this an inherent flaw with monarchy or, or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it is as sort of systemic problem with monarchy that the very security of primogenitor, right, that sort of says exactly who should rule means that like you're kind of stuck with your choice of heir and if they're not suitable, there's nothing you can do about it, really, without causing a huge amount of chaos. You know, trying to disinherit somebody is a good way to get a civil war going. 
and killing them is obviously even worse given the laws of your society unless you unless you get away with that without anyone knowing but that's what Roos brings up the point about the gods like well if the gods are watching then you can't even get away with doing it on the down low and then you've doomed yourself or your whole house uh, and so yeah it, it brings up it's it's kind of off topic but it brings up what Euron says it's like well that's why there are no gods. We know because I've done all these awful things and I haven't suffered for it. Lots of people have kin slayed and haven't been punished for it. So that's another topic, but it's part of why, it's part of where that conclusion comes from. I mean, it maybe it takes a psycho like Euron to re- reach that conclusion in a society like this, but it was kind of a data-driven experiment. <laughs> he looked at the results and said, yeah, well, uh, I'm still here. And that's something kind of interesting about the characters we're talking about in this episode. We've got Euron's the Kinslayer. Ramsey's maybe going to be a Kinslayer if he isn't already, hasn't all killed his brother. Makar killed Baylor, right? So he, our mm-hmm. main subject is a Kinslayer. Stannis's face was on the shadow that killed Renly, since we're talking parallels. Stannis is maybe a pseudo-Kinslayer in a way. I don't know how you call that. With, when magic's involved, I'm not sure exactly what uh, the rules are. But still, I think he applies, certainly. Arian as we discussed during third Blackfire Rebellion talk, he might be the one that killed Hagon and that sort of kinslaying, that's a cousin of his. And, and who knows what else Aaron it's did. A breach of, it's a breach of the laws of war at best. Yeah, you're right. So even if it's not kinslaying, it was really bad. We're going to talk about Gerald the Golden later in this episode. He's almost certainly a kinslayer. He probably killed his, his own brother, if not his niece or both. Uh, so that's pretty bad. And Roos, of all the again, Roos is the guy. Is he the good guy here? No, he's not the good guy here, but he's the only one who doesn't appear to be a kinslayer out of all these characters we've talked about. So that's kind of funny. Uh, so, yeah, what was Makar supposed to do? What was the realm supposed to do? It's a different, these are different questions. You know, the Westeros at least has the wall, which is an option, but even that isn't certain. I mean, so it seems like what happened was Makar just, yeah, Makar's a, a rule follower. If we're sticking with our Stannis parallels, he's not going to shake up the system. He's not the kind of guy to do that. He'll follow the, the, the rules a little too strictly, if anything. So he just, it's what our best guess is that he just went ahead with, yep, yeah, Arian's going to be next. He's going to be king next. That's all there is to it. I'm not going to break the system. I'm not going to change anything. That's just how it is. That could cause quite a bit of anxiety depending on how long this was a state of affairs. Like if, if Arian was the heir for five years in a row, yikes. I mean, the whole realm's gonna be like, uh. <laughs> and then Arian and Daenora going on and have a child named Magor? I mean, that's not gonna help the anxiety. That's gonna make it worse. For all we know, Daenora was nothing like Arian, but heck, she might have been like him. She might have been the one to name the kid Magor. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but hey, you never know. You never know. Well, and then there's also Vaela. Daron had a daughter. Right, yeah. So there is an argument that she has the right to rule. So one of the things that's that's true is like with so many of these candidates, you know, there's something hovering over their head where there's another candidate in the wings who could claim precedence ahead of them. Yeah, or like imagine this girl has her own child, a boy, five or six years later. Then all of a sudden this kid's like, hey, I have a claim to the throne. I'm I'm through the first line of this branch um, it, and if enough people support the kid, then you've got the potential for civil war. So yeah, there's it's very perilous. Like we said, Makar's reign 
had this hanging over it the whole time. Who's going to inherit? Arian? And then who's going to inherit? We don't know. Both are really awful scenarios. Now, Arian is someone we'll explore in greater depth elsewhere. He's a pretty interesting character, despite being pretty evil. But his death was in 232, so a year before the peak uprising. And of course, the old famous wildfire drinking incident, still famous now, probably still famous later. I mean, it is a pretty sensational story. That's the kind of tabloid type story that if it really happens is the kind of thing that stays famous for a long time. So you've got all these dead Targaryens, Maker outlived a lot of his own family, his grandchildren are kind of a mess or too young. I mean, let's be honest, this Magor kid, we never hear about what happened to him. He, he probably died young or something like that. There is no way they're going to put a child on the throne, especially when he's there, that child, the child of Arian. Maybe the kid, you know, by the time he's 10 or 12, shows up, okay, this kid isn't like his father, but you can't take that gamble that far in advance, let alone having a child king. That's a double whammy, isn't it, Steve? And having a, an unknown person. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's a kid who's sort of set up to have an evil reputation. Yeah. You know, he's got his father to you know, the, the memory of his father to contend with. And if matters weren't worse enough already, he's saddled with the name of the worst Targaryen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he would have been treated as ill-omened pretty much from the get-go. It's almost like he's a the way Westeros would treat a bastard. You know, bastards are born of of lust and, and envy and all these other things. And, and it they blame the child for in, for having those things. Now, obviously, Magor was trueborn, but he has that. It's the same sort of blemish from your parents uh, that you, the child has absolutely no control over, and it's a, a very unfair to pin that on them. But yeah, we don't know anything about this kid. He he must have he, he may have died young or just become a non-factor or who knows. Uh, he he really just disappears from the history. Nina suggests that maybe Magor would hope for Egg to be regent to young Magor. Because Magor wasn't going to push young Magor aside. He didn't do that. That didn't happen until the Great Council. And everybody kind of collectively went, yeah, definitely not the one-year-old kid named Magor. It doesn't seem to have been much of an argument. Magor wasn't old, but he wasn't young. I mean, he was a pretty healthy guy, I guess. You know, big dude, uh, warrior. 55 to 59 is the age range we have on here. Mm -hmm. So... You know, he obviously was strong enough to go to war. He went he, and was in the front. So clearly uh, either his pride kept him up there or he really did have the ability or somewhere in between. And you think that yeah, was probably but predictable. He wasn't, wasn't lasting longer than another 10, 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Go Makes ahead. it difficult because it means that whoever the, you know, if a child is born now, even if Makar had survived the peak uprising, they would be, young and untested when they took the throne. Mm -hmm. So if the succession is the chief issue of Makar's reign, and we have little reason to doubt that, it's in the world of ice and fire, and it's a recent thing. It's only set, like I said, less than 70 years ago. And we have people who were alive during that time. Like Pycelle lived during uh, Makar's reign. Obviously, so did Maester Eamon. That's his dad, so of course. Point being, though, it couldn't have been the only issue. Magar's reign couldn't have been only about the succession. That couldn't have been the only problem until the peak uprising. There had to be other things. And part of the reason we're, we're, we're guessing around here is we're trying to get an idea of what might have caused the uprising. Sure, there's unrest and unhappiness with the Targaryens because the peaks are 
Blackfire supporters. That's a part of it. But as far as looking for maybe a trigger or a set of triggers or some reason for them to be upset, we're forced to guess, but we have some decent ideas. So let's go through a few of these and chat them out. Of course, Bloodraven being hand, a lot of people didn't like him. Now picture that. You've got, that alone tells you something. You've got Makar, who's a Stannis parallel. You've got Bloodraven, who's a, a kind of a hardliner, secret police guy, not very forgiving. So put those two guys together, eh, it might have been kind of a harsh, like kind of an unforgiving administration. Yeah, I, I definitely think that there was not a lot of second chances being offered and quite a bit of sort of vindictiveness. I mean, especially in the wake of the third rebellion, you know, which seems to have come the closest to succeeding. You know, I imagine there were lots of Blackfire supporters around. It gives you an idea like of what Stannis, like we talk about Stannis talking about wanting to ban brothels or do all these other kind of things that was like he apparently those were things he actually mentioned he was never actually king on the iron throne probably won't ever be but it's been talked about a lot what kind of king he would be because a lot of people really like the idea of Stannis being king especially given the other options and so it's something that's the fandom has thought about a lot like what would a Stannis regime look like well for one thing he wouldn't have uh it might be balanced out a bit because he wouldn't have a blood raven as hand uh, Melisandre as an advisor might be a problem, but Davos's hand is much different than than Bloodraven, so that at least would be yeah. different. But the whole the whole like banning brothels thing that kind of that's like a, a great example of I don't know if they were if Littlefinger was exaggerating about that one. Sounds like he wasn't though. Sounds like Sanders really wanted to was really considering that, and that's the kind of thing you, you think of when some, a ruler who's too harsh, too unforgiving. You know, they wouldn't be throwing parades in his honor. He might commission a parade, but they wouldn't be like happy about it. You know what I mean? Like that. This isn't a guy who engenders love. He's probably not very popular mm. and neither are the other people in his administration. So might have been worse than Stannis. So there's a Ned Pycelle conversation from really early on that I mentioned that sets up some of the stage here. There was this, as we mentioned in the future of Duncan Egg episode, there was a super summer from 223 slash 224 all the way to around 230, 231-ish, followed by a really bad winter. And the winter is when the uprising happened. And here is a quote from Pycelle to describe that. To be sure, King Makar's summer was hotter than this one and near as long. There were fools, even in the Citadel, who took that to mean that the great summer had come at last, the summer that never ends. But in the seventh year, it broke suddenly, and we had a short autumn and a terrible long winter. Still, the heat was fierce while it lasted. Old Town steamed and sweltered by day and came alive only by night. So that's Eddard Five. So like I said, pretty early on. And mm -hmm. that's him talking about how bad it was. And the reason that's important is because, yeah, he says King Makar's summer was hotter than this one. Wow. Like, of course, that's just Pycelle's memory of it. It may not have really been. But that just goes to show how similar the weather situation was, the summer winter situation was. And we're talking about all these similarities. That's a huge one. Um, because it's the same things are happening. You've got the summer ends right before A Song of Ice and Fire starts. It gets talked about as, oh boy, the winter's going to be really bad. Sure enough, it's just getting started. We, we haven't really seen the full extent of it, but it looks pretty bad. It's, uh, it's already hitting the Riverlands and we'll see. It's obviously 
causing huge blizzards around where Stannis actually is. So I think that's pretty important. Do you have anything to to add to this winter summer parallel, Stephen? Or is that something you've Yeah, I for? mean, you know, I I think it could be another like one of the sort of lists of catalysts of the peak uprising mm. that, you know, we've seen with Robert uh and also with with Eris that long summers token goodwill towards the monarch. It may have been one of the few things, like few sources of popularity that Makar had. Good point. Uh, And then it suddenly goes away. And then there's a terrible long winter. So it could have been one of those, you know, mandate of heaven kind of issues that the peaks raise that, you know. That's a great point because it's well established that the realm complained about the great spring sickness and the drought before that and they blamed it on blood raven who was still the hand of the king so they could pretty they could drag up a lot of that those old grievances and say look it's happening again same reason same problem same flaws same leader same mandate from heaven so yeah i like the mandate from heaven phrase is pretty perfect for this it would also have a logistical effect though huh like during summer it's easier to feed an army during winter. Well, not so much. But if you're in the reach and the peaks are in the southern portion of the reach, the Dornish marches, that's one of the areas least affected by winter. So they might sit there thinking, well, you know, it looks like a lot of the realm is pretty hammered by winter. We're not doing that bad. So maybe that was part of their thinking. Does that does that register with you? Do you think that would make sense, or is there something? I'm I mean, it certainly makes sense how they thought that they could hold off a royal army. It's a lot more expensive and difficult to keep a besieging army out in the field than it is to keep a garrison, a castle garrison, fed. So they may have thought, well, we can outlast him during the winter. And then, you know, when the people see that the king is defeated, then, you know, they'll rise up against him sort of thing. That's a great point. Yeah. And along with that, surely it wasn't just that. We're not trying to look for, since we don't have a single trigger that we know of, we're looking for a variety of reasons, which is more likely than just one reason. That's that's generally how it is. It isn't usually just one offense. It can be. It can be, certainly. But given we don't have one, we're we're looking for a variety of reasons. So here's another example. Here's another thing that might have played in to the Peak's decision. It's another line from Pycelle, but here we're jumping forward to a feast for crows at Tywin's funeral. Sir Jamie, I have seen terrible things in my time, the old man said. Wars, battles, murders most foul. I was a boy in Old Town when the Grey Plague took half the city and three quarters of the citadel. Lord Hightower burned every ship in port, closed the gates, and commanded his guards to slay all those who tried to flee, be they men, women, or babes in arms. They killed him when the plague had run its course. On the very day he reopened the port, they dragged him from his horse and slit his throat and his young sons as well. So if you're the Peaks, you're sitting there going, well, Old Town's pretty weak too. They might not be able to help the king either. 
They're, the high towers are might be in flux. You got the king or the the Lord High Tower and his son were murdered by the city, the city he rules. Doesn't sound like they're going to bring much of an army to the field either. So you got the most powerful house that's not in this that's outside the range of winter that's also been hammered pretty badly. So the Great Plague takes out Old Town, or at least maybe takes them off the board. You got winter taking out a whole bunch of other factors. All of a sudden, maybe you start to see why the peaks might have not been so dumb after all. Because it looks bad in retrospect, doesn't it? It looks like yeah. they just horribly screwed up. Because it, it, the first thing we ever find out about this war is there's a siege of their capital, or of their castle, Starpike. So it sounds like it went from bad to worse really quickly uh, because this all happened within one year. It couldn't possibly have been very drawn out because of the time that we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. One thing about the Great Plague that's interesting is the parallel with the Great Spring Sickness. Yeah. Which is, you know, yet again, another mandate from heaven issue. Another sign that the gods are angry, but also something that discombobulates the realm. You know, you got to imagine if Old Town is suffering like this, then probably Lannisport and King's Landing. Decent chance they got um, hit by it too. Yeah, or a little bit. In Gulltown and so forth. Yeah, good point. Are all suffering as well. So they might have imagined that the royal response would be hampered by pandemic reaction yeah yeah that's a good point and then you especially with that mention of so many of the so many people in the citadel being killed now you already have a lot of maesters out in the world doing their thing but that had to impact the maybe it was more of a long-term issue but the the fact that so many of the students (laughs) that were going to be maesters later were killed then well there's going to be a shortage there's going to be a supply chain issue of maesters coming Mm -hmm. forward there's just not enough young maesters in training so that might be something that came along later, but it certainly might have played a role. You may have had to shuffle some maesters around. They may have had to bring some people back. Who knows? It's uh, Like you said, it would have been a not a standard situation. It would have been an abnormal state of affairs. Mm-hmm. So the uprising happens in 233. Again, we don't know what the final trigger was, what the final straw that broke the camel's back. We're not sure. Like we said, it's probably a bunch of things, confluence of factors. So this is 12 years after Makar was crowned and 14 years after the third Blackfire Bounty. So not that close to those events. Not super far, but quite a bit later. Roughly the same length between Blackfire 1 and 2, actually. Uh, Blackfire 2 was more like 16 years later, but it also wasn't a full rebellion. Yeah, like this one. So we also don't know the full degree of participation of the Peaks in the third Blackfire Billion. They probably participated. It seems likely, right? But we don't know how much. And given that they likely did, though, not unlikely they got some sanctions, some more sanctions, more than they already got, losing two castles after the first Blackfire Billion, losing Gorman Peak's head after the second one. There must have been some punishment. Again, we're talking about Bloodraven here. Not Makar, though. Keep that in mind, folks. Blackfire 3 was during the reign of Ares, who was a lot milder. After all, he's the one who said, yeah, let's just let Bitter still go to the wall. That seems fine. That didn't work out, but hey. What do you think about that? The idea that some sort of sanction laid on them would have played a role here, some sort of tax burden or penalty or something that they were still steaming over. It seems kind of likely, right? Yeah, possibly hostages. Ooh, hostages. Good point. Yeah. Didn't think uh, especially if the hostages died during the Great Plague. Oh, yeah. Like another Rick, a kind of a replay of, of what happened with the spring sickness. Yeah, because that was a big trigger for the Blackfire 2 was 
all the hostages were dead. So they no longer were sacrificing their own family members by rising up. So yeah, 12 years. That's a great idea because we were talking, like we said, 12 years after Makar was crowned, 14 years later, whoever the hostages were may have passed by then. And it may have, like you said, may even be because of the sickness or the second sickness that is. Nina makes a good comparison here, comparing the peak uprising to a little bit like what Oberyn tried to do after Robert's Rebellion. Remember, there was rumors that Oberyn sort of went around and tried to see what kind of support he could get for Viserys before Jon Arryn sort of got involved and talked that thing down, which, yeah, mm-hmm. like, good job, Jon Arryn. That wasn't going to go well for anyone, I don't think. How does that? I like this comparison a lot. It, it didn't go. The peaks didn't have a Jon Arryn come talk them down. But it's pretty similar in that the, the trigger might be sanctions. It might be past grievances, blood debt. Like there probably might still be mad about Gorman Peak's death. Might be his son in charge this time uh, or his grandson, something like that. So we know how those Westerosi take blood debts pretty seriously, even when the people they're mad about getting killed are the bad guy <laughs> in the first place or what have you. But we also see another pattern here that maybe just failed for them. Uh, surely they expected people to join them. They wouldn't, they couldn't have, even if they expected the realm was weaker, even if they expected Makar wouldn't have full support. Maybe they had a little Balon Greyjoy going on where they thought, ah, he doesn't have the realm behind him as much as he thinks. Uh, a very bad miscalculation on Balon's part, possibly the same thing for the peaks here. But that's basically what the current Blackfire situation is, right? If we call young Griff the Blackfire situation, which I think is fair to do, even if you don't, it's still the same thing. They're landing with the Golden Company, winning, a, trying to win a few victories to show everyone they're serious and win people to their side. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we can assume here is that whole win a few victories to get people on their side part failed miserably. They may just have not won those initial victories and it just... Do you have any headcanon on what we think happened? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it depends. You know, they could have gone for High Garden. Ooh, yeah. Whoops. Um, <laughs> they did. That's a mistake. <laughs> that would be a sort of a possibility. They could have tried to raise up the Dornish marches in general. Mm. So looking for other, because we know that the, the marcher houses were on, on both sides of the reach Stormlands Dorn border were more likely to join with the Blackfires. Yeah. There's Dornish on um, both sides, of course, as we know, but there were more Dornish on the side of the, of the loyalists. And at this point, you've got Makar, who Egg, or all of Makar's kids are men, right? Their mother was Dornish, their grandmother was Dornish. So that's, that's an important factor. Right. So they may have been trying to rise, rouse up Vulture King oh, style yeah. uprising. Yeah, good call. And that just failed. Seems pretty likely they were trying to lure Bittersteel over to come. Like, if, like it's pretty much what the Gorman Peak was trying to do. He's like, yeah, once Bittersteel will come over once we get this going. Once he sees us winning, once we're succeeding, sure, he's not going to sit on the sidelines. He's not going to miss his chance to, to be on the winning side. Surely they expected him to come, but I wonder to what degree. Do you suspect they had communication at all? Or do you think it was just... Uh, I mean, obviously, it's um, mostly I pure guesswork. I suspect some but. sort of communication, but... Probably similar to the second rebellion that 
the peaks have a habit of assuming that they can engineer support out of thin air mm. by just going ahead and kind of committing themselves. I wonder why that is. You think that's because of their prior near ascendancy? I mean, they were, it's, it's hard to think about them this way now, but the peaks were like a top 10 power in Westeros back then. So maybe some of that is just, they thought it used to be the way it was. They think this is still the old days when any peak says, let's go, people follow them. But it's just not like yeah, that anymore. I, I, think, <laughs> I think the recency of their fall from grace had maybe left them thinking that more pe- more of their former vassals mm. would side with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, here's another idea from Nina. This is a good thought. Along the lines of the peaks banking on animosity por- towards Magor, uh, Makar himself or his family, one of the deeds she refers to that happened fairly... Uh, had to have happened before this because obviously it was during Makar's reign and this was the last thing he did because he died during this uprising was he took Hall away from Half Lawston. This also is an event shrouded in mystery. It was apparently because Lady Danelle Lawston turned to the dark arts, but there's already rumors she was involved in that before and it's kind of sketchy that she even was. We don't really know, but it's possible that it was tyrannical or could be looked on as tyrannical. Taking a huge castle away from a family and giving it to another family, that isn't done very often. And this, especially without a, a real war behind it, there's no indication that they were traitors. So this was... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Danelle had been a staunch loyalist. Yeah, they fought in the... Uh, yeah, they they showed up at the Blackfire too. Yeah, they showed up to with their troops to, to back up Bloodraven. So yeah, it's... You could make the argument they turned on a loy- on one on the, one of their friends like yeah look at these Targaryens they they turn on their own you know like there's all sorts of marketing <laughs> anti-Targaryen marketing that the Peaks could have been engaged in you can it writes itself right uh, even without mm-hmm. knowing the specifics so yeah there's a lot of this uh, a lot of this anti-Targaryen sentiment I mean there's another thing really. One thing that I think is maybe lost in the shuffle, and maybe something that George R. R. Martin was just trying to set up as a subtle thing, is like there weren't very many good Targaryen kings at all, right? The entire run of Targaryen kings, only a few of them are pretty good. And the realm had suffered a lot of unclear successions or threatened reigns in a row. We talked about Makar's succession issues in his realm or in his time. But his great-grandfather, Viserys II, ruled for about a year, year and a half. Obviously, a reign that short's not stable. You don't think of that as being stable. Prior to Viserys, there were two kings in a row who never had kids. Baylor and Daron the Young Dragon. That's Baylor the Blessed, that is. Go back two more kings, and you're in the dance. <laughs> That's the least stable time of all. So then going forward, after Viserys II, the guy who was king for a year, year and a half, you got Aegon the Unworthy, the biggest screwer-upper of future generations. Then you've got Daron, who was one of the pretty good ones. But his, like we talked about earlier, his his good run ended so ominously and painfully with Baylor's death just before it, then the sickness killing him and the heirs, and it looked real bad. Uh, and then you got King Aerys, who was not really a kingly type. And also didn't have kids. So you just got a bunch yeah. of Targaryens not having kids, a bunch of Targaryens not and interested in And Aelor and Aelora's unstable. Yeah, so it's just a mess. Like someone like the Peaks could look, say, look at this. 
look at all this instability for generations and they might think that would work. And well, I guess it didn't. Uh, but it's not a bad yeah. argument. <laughs> it's like, you know what? These Targaryens really haven't done a great job here, have they? Do you think that's a stretch or um, would that be a selling point? I mean, I think it's probably the more recent stuff. Like, I doubt that they went all the way back to Viserys II. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think the the chaos from Ares the first onwards, they sort of were marketing. Yeah, like ever since the end of Daron's reign, it's been nothing but yeah, rebellions, plagues, nasty winter. Yeah, there's okay. So let's let's add some of this up. We know the the uprising failed really badly. So maybe they badly misjudged their support for a variety of reasons. The misjudging Makar's popularity, misjudging the impact of winter, misjudging, uh, misjudging how weak Old Town was. Now, they could have gotten some of these things right and just any one of them could have gone wrong for them or just a couple of them went wrong for them. And then we have all these other things we mentioned. So there's a lot of things. So, you know, from their perspective at the time, it might not have seemed so dumb. And, you know, we're looking at it in retrospect. So, I don't know. It's, it's easy to call it dumb, but maybe it was less dumb than it seemed. Certainly didn't work, though. Whatever it was, didn't work. Worked terribly. We quickly find ourselves with the siege situation. That's another thing, though, to keep in mind, though, before we get to the siege. What's at stake for House Pete? It's not just what's at stake them losing. It's what their end achievement was, what they were hoping to win. Because if they win, if the Blackfires win, House Peak is basically the House Velaryon to the Targaryens, the number two house to yeah. that house. Or they're the Lannisters to Robert Baratheon, right? Yeah, I, I think they certainly saw themselves that way as sort of first among equals. You think they maybe felt like they deserved it? Someone like Unwin Peak definitely thought he deserved that sort of... <laughs> but uh, we haven't even mentioned Unwin yet. The, the king of all bad peaks, basically. <laughs> I mean, Gorman Peak certainly behaved that way. That's true. Yeah, they really they really you have know, an attitude. Yeah. And and you saw he, he had an attitude even with other Blackfires. That he, he thought That's that true. he could, in effect, tell Bittersteel what to do. Yeah, like he could move Bittersteel like a pawn, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he has too much... Hmm, pride is not quite the right word, though he definitely had too much of that. I guess maybe. I guess it's just arrogance. It might just be straight up arrogance. I don't know. Maybe there isn't a better word than that. Yeah. <laughs> but it comes from these, his, these generations of belonging to this really powerful family and just all these expectations of privilege and success and maybe even a little bit of destiny mixed in their um, you know, foolish estimation of that. But you know, from their perspective, that's what they think. So earlier we talked about uh, the idea that possibly they were going to do a targeted assassination here. I like that idea a lot. Let's talk about that. I raised the issue of how difficult it would be to assassinate a king like this in the Red Keep, given their tight, what's likely pretty tight security. So why would they want to cause a succession crisis? Would that be to, to foist their own candidate on? Do you think maybe they were already thinking about Damon III or maybe even Aenys Blackfire? I wonder. Yeah, yeah. that's a possibility. They may have thought that the Blackfires could win a vote in a great council if the Targaryens were, were sort of put in doubt. Mm. But, you know, another possibility is that they thought that, you know, they could essentially win this come from behind victory 
Mm. That, you know, you kill the king, you leave chaos in his wake, there's no clear succession. Maybe the royal army just, you know, melts away. Or stands on the sideline, just doesn't know what to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And that's also very much what the current, again, we're talking about the current Black Fires, the plan of John Khan and, and Illyrio and Varus is create instability, come in and be the solution. And that's not unlikely what we're describing or not unlike what we're describing here. It sounds like they were trying to increase the instability and then maybe be the solution to that instability, uh, even though they're mm-hmm. a part of the cause of it in the first place. Maybe, maybe exacerbate the pending instability. They're like, oh, once Maycar dies, this is going to happen one way or another. We may as well speed that process up while we have some candidates ready to go. Because a few years from now, who knows? Maybe the, things will have changed. So maybe they thought this was their one chance. Mm-hmm. They may have already been banking on the, the unpopularity of Egon, of Egg. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, now, I would guess Maycar didn't bring Blood Raven with him to the siege. You rarely would have the king and hand be in the same place. You need the hand probably to stay behind to run things. But I, I wanted to throw that out there in case there's something I'm not thinking of. Do you, would you agree with that? Or, or Yeah, I mean, I think Maycar is the would be something of a lead from the front micromanaging type. Yeah. That, you know, he wants to be in charge of the battle. So he wouldn't want Blood Raven second guessing him. Yeah. That's a good point. Because <laughs> he'd also be like, Blood Raven would want to make sure he was protected. Would be like, dude, don't stand in the front. Yeah, I don't want him. I'm not bringing Blood Raven. He's going to pester me about staying safe. <laughs> the King's Guard can do that enough, but oh well, I guess it didn't work. <laughs> Maybe Blood Raven's like, yeah, mm-hmm. see, that's why I should have been there. <laughs> Dumbass got smashed by a rock. <laughs> How are you going to let that happen, man? Come on. It's the downside of wearing a helmet with a crown on it. You do make yourself something of a target. Yes, that's a good point. Remember how that was a thing in the discussion between uh, Tywin's or Jamie's commanders when they're like, it's easy to spot Blackfish. We'll we'll shoot him with some some night soil arrows. And once he's gone, their defense will collapse. Yeah, take out the key guy. You're right. And the the crowned helm is a specifically mentioned feature of this. Not a lot of detail, but it is absolutely mentioned that he had that crowned helm on. And of course he would. I mean, he's the king. He's going to have his crown. But you're right to point that out as something that's very visible. Let's consider some ideas besides the targeted killing, though. The idea that they expected him to die. Maybe there was something like a... I don't know, a marriage. Like they were expecting, maybe the, the way this was all put to rest was a young peak daughter is going to marry or a son is going to marry, say, Kiera, uh, Kiera and Daron's daughter. Maybe that's too high of a marriage for them given their treason, but it's not out of the line of possibility or maybe, maybe they were going to marry a lesser child. And then, they, then when the succession changes, let's say it shifts to Arian because Daron's died, all of a sudden they're not in the line, their kid's not in the front line anymore. I tend to say this is a more of a remote idea because I don't know that they would have gotten such a fancy marriage. But on the other hand, this is this is how you wipe out past enmity. You know, you do these marriages. Um, but again, Blood Raven, Makar, yeah, are they going to do that? Yeah, that doesn't fit in with the the Stanish, Stanish-ish. <laughs> That's a tough word. <laughs> nature of Makar's reign. Yeah, I tend to lean. He doesn't seem too. the type to to reach out to the peaks. Yeah. I tend to agree with that. It, it maybe, you know, maybe it was uh, 
a lesser marriage. Like that one I could see maybe fitting. Like I definitely don't think there's any way they would get like the top prince or princess, the one that's in the direct line, but maybe a lesser one. Still, even that's a stretch. In a different realm, in a different regime, absolutely possible. But I, I tend to agree that Bloodraven Makar is maybe one of the least likely times for something like that to happen. But we got to consider it as a possibility. So, and another house that doesn't come up, you mentioned maybe the reason the Peak got in such trouble is they went straight for Highgarden or something like that. And that's interesting. We don't hear about the Tyrells during this at all. Now, we're short on yeah, details. Yeah, that they still. would be involved given that they were Lords Paramount of the South. Uh, sorry, Wardens of the South, Lord Paramount of the Reach, High Marshal, etc., etc. Like, this is happening right on their doorstep and we don't hear... And like the most prominent members of the siege are all Westermen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is really interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Because yeah, the, the, that's something we're going to get to in the second half here. We talk about so many key deaths that happened in this event. But yeah, a lot of them were, they're mostly Westermen and Makar himself. So yeah, where are the key Reachmen in all this. Maybe some of them were on the side of the peaks or they just stayed neutral. They just didn't want to take a side. Or they were able to do like a lot of houses did during the rebellion or various rebellions. They said, oh, they made up an excuse. <laughs> They're like, ah, winter's hit us too hard. Or yeah, the, the gray plague got us. The plague. Yeah. There's a lot of excuses around this era probably that could work out. And this is where I want to get back into the discussions of honor and how honor dictated a lot of the events that we're about to get to. Whatever the reasons the peaks rebelled or uprose, whatever term you prefer, their sworn vassals and sworn men were bound by honor to obey, even if it was the dumbest rebellion ever, right? Uh, even if we're, even if all these reasons we thought up don't have much to do with it, and it was really just stupid. The peak just like the Lord Peak at the time was just a pure blind idiot and he went <laughs> and he went for it for a bunch of bad reasons, things that were that we've overestimated, that he overestimated even more. Yet his men still had to follow him. I mean, and that's that's too bad for them. So fast forward to the storming of Starpike. What could have been just a siege that eventually they're like, okay, you got us. We're out of food. We gotta, we gotta surrender. We we held out. Well, or we aren't cowards. We didn't give up easily because that's important in Westeros. You know, standing tall, not giving up easily. But because the siege lingered, for whatever reason, it enabled this tragic event, which was well. Let's have a quote. This is. Again, from the perspective of the West, not from the Reach. It comes from the extended version of the Westerland's history in the world of ice and fire. Pierced through with a spear as he clambered through the broken gates of Starpike, Tywald died in the arms of his twin brother, Tion, who was serving as a squire to Prince Aegon Targaryen, King Makar's youngest son. The prince, it is said, fulfilled Tywald's last request and dubbed him a knight as he was dying. King Makar himself had perished less than an hour earlier. His crowned helm, crushed by a rock, dropped from the battlements as he led the attack on Starpike's main gates. Others slain upon that grievous day included Lord Robert Rain, Sir Roger Rain, the Red Lion, his eldest son and heir, took a bloody vengeance after the battle, 
slaying seven captive peaks before Prince Aegon arrived to halt the slaughter. So Makar was already leading attack on the gates. He apparently was like, all right, we're not going to keep the siege going too long because, as we said, winter, maybe they can't feed their army. They can't just sit there forever. Even if they had broken down the gates, they probably wouldn't have been so brutal, though. It was because of the death of the king, I think, is why. I mean, I don't think you have seven captive peaks get killed if King Makar isn't killed. Or maybe you do because in the Rogers case, he was mad about his father's death. On the other hand, would his yeah. father have even died if Makar had died? I get the feeling that a lot of powerful lords, a lot of big names, joined the storming of the gates after Makar was killed. Whereas before, that's the kind of thing you tend to leave to lesser men. On the other hand, if Makar is in the front himself, then the other lords are going to be with him. So where do you fall on this? Uh, like, what's your headcanon for what was basically happening here of the moment Makar was killed, if you have any... So I think the storming was probably due to necessity. Mm -hmm. I think the winter meant that they were running out of food to continue the siege. And rather than risk a defeat, they just said, all right, we're just going to go for it. Yeah. And Makar just gets unlucky, you know, or the defenders get lucky. And I think it, it led to a a sort of leadership vacuum. I get the sense that like Roger Rain's bloody vengeance is at least in part because no one's really in charge at the moment. Oh, good point. You know, the, the only person who comes close is, is is egg. Yeah. And egg is of, he's a prince, but he's not the crown prince. Right. That's so yeah, that's difficult. He's not necessarily the man in charge. He has authority, but not necessarily absolute authority. And that's an interesting point, too. I mean, everyone there, other than those blinded by bloodlust or the, the immediate things that, that just happened in the immediate aftermath, like anyone with their, with their wits about them is going to go, okay, this succession crisis that's been building for 12 years under this guy's reign has now come to a full head. Yeah, we got to finish this this storming of this castle. Yeah, we got this to deal with. But we need to get back to King's Landing quickly here and get this figured out. I mean, the Great Council happens the same year. It's it's later the same year, overseen by Blood Ravens. It, it kicked off quickly. Yeah, it makes you wonder how early in the year this was. yeah. It all happened in one year. Because it takes time for for a great council to gather. That's true. So this this must have happened pretty early in the year. Um, Probably in the first six months. What will uh, become the Great Council 233 overseen by Blood Raven? Of course, we've discussed that before. But thinking of in the moment, Makar is killed. You're Egg. You're his son. What's your reaction? Uh, knowing what we know about him. And Dunk is there too, most likely. I mean, I can't, it's hard to imagine Dunk isn't there with Egg. That's just some, that's almost entirely out of the question. So what do they do? Do they go charging into the fray saying, you, you killed our, you killed my father. You know, I'm in this, for, you know, I got an honor bound to, to respond. Are the other lords doing that same thing? Is, is his death part, basically what I'm building to is, it sounds like the death of Makar, besides leading to the obvious death of seven peaks and a lot of dead defenders, probably the rush to get revenge or to settle the honor of the blood debt caused even more lords to get killed, like this this ty- young Tywald, uh, maybe Lord Robert Rain, some of these others. 
I get the sense that maybe this wouldn't have happened um, if, if Makar hadn't died. What do you think about that? Or am I maybe exaggerating or, or what do you think? Um, it's quite a possibility. I mean, you get the sense that anytime that you're trying to fight through a check, a choke point, yeah. like the broken gates of Starpike, that increases the, the danger for the people who are in the forlorn hope. Yeah. And the fact that Tyon and Tywald were both there on the scene and so was Egg, because Egg is right there on the spot to, to dub Tywald the Knight as yeah. he's dying. So Egg is there in the breach. You know, this could have gone much worse. Yeah. Like, imagine wow. Egg dies too. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and to, to make sure some of these connections are clear, of course, Egg is still connected to... Uh, the Lannister family, Gerald the Golden, who is, you know, related to some of these, he's the, he's the father of Tion and Tywald and Tytos and Jason. He is the one that supposedly bribes a bunch of people that is the main voice that leads to Egg becoming king. And these connections obviously existed before that. Obviously, Egg is already, has one of them as a squire and the other is a squire for a reign. So these, these, these connections were there. These uh, existing relationships were there and they were sundered by all these deaths. So not only mm-hmm. is Makar's death a huge deal, but these other deaths are a big deal and that's going to be a big part of uh, what we're going to discuss in the second half of this episode. Mm-hmm. And of course, all this lines up. It says an hour earlier, King Makar dies, right? So, and Tywald stumbles, you know, clambers through the gates, it says, and gets pierced by a spear. Uh, so if Tywald is going through, that makes sense why those reins were there. He's a squire to them. So, yeah, there's, they're all charging through. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal to think about this. Think about medieval armies. Think about ancient armies and the whole law of what you do to a captured city. It applies somewhat here. Meaning that a lot of times the rule tended to be unwritten rule was if you surrender before the ram touches the gates, you, uh, you can expect reasonable treatment if you surrender. If they start, if, if you make them try, then they're going to do their worst. It, it, there's this back and forth as to what's acceptable behavior. And if there's a a few things that if these lines are crossed, anything goes. One of those lines is, like we said, you know, uh, holding out too long or or killing someone. So killing the king is about as, is certainly on that list. If you kill the king, it kind of makes it okay for people to do their worst to you. I'm not agreeing with that. I'm just saying that's how it how it seems to be. Yeah, well, right? that's how seven captive peaks wind up dead. Normally, you, you can know? never do that. That's like a horrible violation of honor, right? But because the king's yeah, dead, but, yeah, yeah, you know, you get the sense that the the people around Roger Rain weren't holding him back. Yeah, no one's gonna that stop. They were him, just you know. <laughs> they they had taken the opinion, you know, well. The castle resisted. They they get whatever is coming to them. Yeah, they resisted and they killed the king. I mean, it's a double whammy. I think just you were you were your traitors. You made us do all this fighting and you killed the king. I mean, yeah, they really. If I was a peak inside that castle, I would not have expected any. I would yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect much in terms of mercy there. And indeed, it doesn't seem to be. Only Egg apparently kept it from getting worse. If he stopped seven actual peaks from being killed, 
I mean, what were what was being done to the other people in the castle? Probably pretty bad things too, right? I mean, who was gonna who was mm-hmm. stopping the the kitchen people from being assaulted or the the just random children running around that had nothing to do with anything? Yeah, it was probably awful. Here is a uh, a thought from a regular in our Facebook group, MD Cesara Saint Prue. I hope I said your name close to right. I apologize if not. I've only ever seen it written before. He says, to me, Makar also has parallels with Daemon Targaryen, a very military-minded younger brother who is forever in his older brother's shadow, but who ends up saving the realm and his family, though he's greatly misunderstood by most. Also, he reminds me of Viserys II, who both saved the realm in their youth, but also had older brothers who made rule of the realm difficult due to their perception with the small folk, like Aegon V, who was a force under came to power and really wasn't expected to. Yeah, that's some good points there. Aegon V is called Aegon the Unlikely because he's the fourth son of a fourth son. But Makar is that first fourth son. So he is pretty unlikely too. That was never expected to rule, um, which is maybe part of why he had a, a wife from Dorne. More of a bring them into the fold rather than promote them to the top spot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I like that Makar to Damon parallel. I mean, they have different personalities, but yeah, they, it, it, they have character and disposition are different, but in terms of their position in the family, inheritance, circumstances, their abilities, yeah. That's a pretty good. That's a good, good, pretty parallel. What, what do you think about that? I mean, to me, their their personalities are are a little too divergent. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, to make that a good parallel, they're just very different people. Yeah. Um. I I see Viserys the second as working a little bit better. Yeah, that does work pretty well. Those personalities are a lot closer. I mean, Viserys as a king didn't last very long, but he was a hand for twenty years and. That's another one where circumstances make Viserys II seem a lot like Tywin. A lot of similar a- aspects to their family and upbringing and parenting and children. But actual personality, not so much necessarily. Matt Reese says, Could a gra- great council have been planned already to take place since the uprising was over, given there was a question of succession? Maybe, In other words, was Bloodraven perhaps having that in the back of his mind? Was he thinking, well, this might be necessary? He may have been planning to... Uh, do that it may have been in the back of his mind. I like that. I mean, idea. it like does, ahead. Yeah. What do you think? It does take a good deal of preparation to do one of these great councils. Yeah. You have to send ravens to every house and wet noble house in Westeros. You know, you need to to find a venue that can hold the retinues of all of the great houses of Westeros. And some of them might so, be kind of wary of coming without a large retinue, <laughs> like like Unwin Peak. Well, did. yeah, and we know that <laughs> the, the, the the Lannisters and the Tyrells had large retinues. Yeah, huge, really. And this is still winter, so that's tricky, right? Like we're still, even though this event is over, King, this is winter at King's Landing. So yes, sending the ravens out, and making the travel, which is all is to say that it's really likely this uprising was really quick. (laughs) This was about as quick as possible um, because this whole thing happened in the span of a year. Arguably, if George were to go into greater detail here, he might decide, actually, this happened in late 232. The uprising happened a little. He might might expand the range a little bit on these things without, you know, without it being much of a... Or the Great Council happened towards the very end of 233. Yeah. Yeah, it pretty much has to, huh? Also, we've talked about the, uh, just as an aside, a little detail here. Um, we've talked about the meta behind House Peak and the Gorman Gas series, Mervyn Peak. 
Star Pike is also a reference, according to the wiki, uh, to Steer Pike, a character in that same uh, series, the Gormenghast novels. So that's cool. Okay. Let us start our second half with succession crises and difficulties and a quote read by Ashea. The chaos caused by the death of King Makar I during the storming of Starpike has been abundantly chronicled elsewhere, so we need not treat of it here. Suffice it to say that the matter of succession was so tangled that the king's hand, Lord Brynden, Bloodraven Rivers, summoned a great council to settle the issue. The assembled nobles, swayed in no small part by the eloquence and some suggest the gold of Lord Gerald the Golden, ultimately awarded the Iron Throne to Prince Aegon, who would rule the Seven Kingdoms for the next 26 years as King Aegon V, the unlikely. So that quote is also from the extended Westerlands uh, section, which you can find on George's uh, website. Uh, the, the version that's published in the World of Ice and Fire is a bit shorter. This is the unabridged section. Now, I'm not actually clear on what parts are missing from uh, the abridged version. So uh, you may find the exact same phrase in the World of Ice and Fire version. But just in case, if you find a missing sentence here or there, that's why. So I underlined the phrase abundantly chronicled elsewhere. That's George's code for I'm going to write about this later. <laughs> I don't want to write myself in a corner. It's pretty much the exact same phrasing he did for Blackfire 3, isn't it, Stephen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> abundantly chronicled my butt. It's not abundantly chronicled at all. So, but that is good news. Hopefully, if George has time for that one day, he'll uh, we'll get more news on that. Maybe in Fire and Blood 2, if we ever get that far. So, uh, let's talk about specifics, though. Other succession crises, difficulties. Um, obviously, for the Iron Throne, is a big deal. The peaks have never been the same again. I mean, <laughs> seven dead peaks does seem to... They probably didn't kill just the youngest ones. It's probably the oldest working their way down or something like that. But they do, they do still exist, right? There's still peaks out there. Star Pike is still ruled by them, which is kind of odd, maybe. But maybe uh, it's because so many peaks were killed. They're like, well, we would have taken yeah. your castle away, but instead we slaughtered your family. So we'll just leave that. <laughs> is that was that kind of how you read it? Yeah, I think that's basically the case that it was such an egregious act of violence, the killing of captives. Again, this breach of the of the um, cannons of war that they sort of felt that they couldn't really uh, also take away the castle, that that would be viewed as too bloodthirsty, too tyrannical. Yeah, I agree with that totally. It is, it's, it's seven peaks. We don't know what kind of, like what age they were. It's entirely possible some of these were young, like if not maybe even children, which would make it even worse. And that would be the kind of thing they would maybe keep on the down low a bit. So maybe some land was taken away though. That would explain why they still have their castle but have lost a lot of power and status would be, would be because they have lost more land. Kind of like what happened with Harrenhal. Uh, like what happened with the Conningtons. Ah, yes. Great example. The Conningtons. Yeah. But there's also peaks in the Golden Company. So that's what I wanted to get at. There's peaks still at Starpike, but there's peaks in the Golden Company. So some people in the Golden Company are out there going, well, I want to get my family castle back. So what's going on with these peaks? What are they trying to get back? Are they in league with their Westerosi-based peaks or are they going to try to usurp their cousins? What do you think about that, Stephen? It's kind of, kind of confusing. 
Yeah, it's it's an ambiguous uh, situation. They they could be looking to gain the other cat, the other lost, ca- you know, the two lost castles back. They could be a different branch of the Peak family. Yeah. Like maybe the seven Peaks who were killed wiped out the main branch and you're left with sort of feuding cousins. That makes sense. They're still, like their old blood still carries some power in social circles. Uh, the current Lord Peak is named Titus, which is, by the way, for those of you interested in the meta, that is the name, the main character of the Gormenghast series is Titus. So he's married to Margot Lannister, a, who we don't know what who Margot is. She's probably not a Lannister of Casterly Rock. She's probably a Lannister of Lannisport, but she might be a Lannister of, of Casterly Rock. And if they're still getting marriages like that, then people still respect the ancientness of their family. They do still, you know, claim descent from Floris the Fox, and there's a bunch of famous peaks, even though they've fallen in in status. That old blood is Man, that is really still very powerful social currency in Westeros, even when you've fallen from grace. We can't undervalue that, even though it seems like they're not what they used to be. There's still maybe a little more there than we think. So maybe we'll figure out what happens there. Maybe we'll, we'll get more about that um, in the next books. But it seems like the Peaks are, are maybe not big players, but they're definitely still involved. George didn't insert them for nothing. So we have some other questions, too. Um, when was this marriage made? When was this Margot Lannister... Lord Peak marriage made was it Mary? Was it done? Uh, Nina gives us a, a few options to consider to sort of get the, the theory juices flowing here. Was it made during the reign of Jaehaerys II? After all, consider Tywald Lannister dies at Starpike, so you, yet you have a Lannister marrying a Peak. <laughs> so that something happened, Mont- right? Using I mean, Capulets. Hmm. Or could it have been during the reign of the Mad King when the Peaks were trying to regain some former status? Maybe marrying, maybe Tywin decides to bring them into the fold, perhaps as a part of his bulwark against Ares. Uh, after all, Tywin wasn't sure which way the, the winds were going to blow there. Um, or maybe right after Robert's Rebellion. Uh, the Reach was not on Robert's side. They were mostly for the Targaryens. So maybe uh, a few marriages to ancient houses within the Reach might help shore up that new loyalty. I like that idea. Or maybe it was during Robert's reign because there were so many Lannisters. Well, you know, tie your family, tie your royal family to as many houses as possible to, to shore up as much support as possible. Stephen, any of those theories jump out as you as more likely than others or or maybe... Um, I like one? the reign of Jaehaerys II. Yeah? Okay. Maybe that, part of that blood. strikes me as as uh, a marriage made as a sort of a peace agreement. Because mm. the reins, it's a vassal, like a, a, the reins were heavily tied to the Lannisters at this time. And if so, there the reins crime against the peaks might be the shame of that might be shared by their in laws, the Lannisters and their overlords, since the reins are vassals of the Lannisters. So that that checks uh, that checks out that. You know, as far as Westerosi ethics. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that entangling connection there. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of these entanglements, so we'll talk about entanglements. Indirectly, these deaths would set in motion the events that destroyed House Rain and House Tarback, the infamous Reigns of Castamere, a saga 
which brings us to another nice lengthy quote to set that up. Less well-known, but no less baleful, are the dire effects the battle would have upon the history of the West. Tywald Lannister had long been betrothed to the Red Lion's spirited young sister, Lady Ellen. This strong-willed and hot-tempered maiden, who had for years anticipated one day being the Lady of Casterly Rock, was unwilling to forsake that dream. In the aftermath of her betrothed's death, she persuaded his twin brother, Tion, to set aside his own betrothal to a daughter of Lord Rowan of Golden Grove and espouse her instead. Lord Gerald, it is said, opposed this match and did what he could to forbid it, but grief and age and illness had left him a pale shadow of his former self, and in the end, he gave way when his son Tion revealed that his brother had pleaded with him to, quote, take care of Lady Ellen with his last words. In 235 AC, in a double wedding at Casterly Rock, Sir Tion Lannister took Ellen Rain to wife, whilst his meek younger brother, Titos, wed Jane Marbrand, a daughter of Lord Denys Marbrand of Ashmar. So Lord Gerald was right to oppose that match. They may have avoided the entire Reigns of Castamere situation. So (laughs) Ellen marries Tion, or Tyon, we're not sure how to say it, doesn't really matter would be just would die three years later or one year later, three years after the peak uprising, one year after this marriage. So Ellen marries the heir to Castle or marries the heir to Castle Rock. He dies. She marries the next heir to Castle Rock. He dies. If you think she's done, she's not. She actually tried to move in on Titos, but Jane Marbrand wasn't having it. She's like, back off. This is my heir to Castle Rock. <laughs> I'm going to give birth to Tywin and all these other kids. And a lot of this is something we'll talk about later. It's certainly worth an episode to get into the reigns of Castamere in greater detail. But we're, we just want to talk about the fallout here. Don't forget, El- Rohan Weber vanished in 230 and was presumed long dead. So that's part of the grief Lord Gerald is, is suffering because that's his wife that vanished. And now he's got his twins... Uh, have died within a couple years. Apparently, he's been sick. And he'd been sick, yeah. I so, never really noticed that, just by the way, that he was sick. Yeah, and he, but he lived until 244. So he got, basically, when Tywald died, it, it, it crushed him a bit. But when Tion died, he, he found his strength. It's kind of like Rhaenyra, mm-hmm. how first death crushed her, the second death made her angry and got her going. Uh, pretty similar to that. When Titus inherits after Gerald's death, that means... That meant Lady Jane would be Lady of the Rock. And uh, yeah, there was lots of going back and forth until Lord Gerald finally had enough. And to get rid of Lady Ellen, uh, he had her, gave her a third husband since she was unmarried. And it was to a Tarbeck. It's a second husband, technically. Oh, that's true. The other one was never actually she, finished. Yeah, she it never was betrothal. Married. You're right. She yeah. didn't actually marry Tywald. He was betrothed. That's true. She did actually marry this Lord Tarbeck. And that's how the Reigns and Tarbecks got connected to leading to all that. So... Yes. Anything to add to this, Stephen? What are your uh, What are your thoughts on? I mean, this, this much. I I think the death of Tyon is instrumental in causing the reigns of Castamere because I think it made Ellen sort of what's the right word? Jealous, fearful. Mm. This this had been like a well established you know, alliance between the two families. 
right? It was yeah. Tywald was Lord Robert Rain's squire. Now, the Ran- Lannisters and Reigns seem to be getting along just fine before all this. Like, well, not just fine, but like, well. Right. And so it was a case of like lifelong expectations suddenly uprooted. And it produced in her aggressive tendency. Mm, yeah. And you sort of think, you know, if the storming of Starpike hadn't happened, maybe the reigns of Castamere wouldn't have happened because Ellen would be less. She would have just been. Anxious. Yeah, she would have just been the Lady of Castle Rock. She wouldn't have had to fight for it. I mean, maybe she would have been a really terrible Lady of Castle Rock, but she wouldn't have had to intrigue for it. <laughs> she would have just been it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was apparently good at the job. Yeah, you're right. Like, she was. That's one of the shames of the reigns of Castamere is that like. Ellen Rain was good as a ruling lady of Casterly Rock. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that is kind of overlooked that she did seem to like while she was kind of de facto in charge, it wasn't official that she was in charge, but she was effectively because Titus was just kind of like, eh, and Gerald was doing other stuff or or both. And yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, she she did a better job than Titus did, it seems. Um, yeah, that gets overlooked, I think. So that's a, that's an important aspect. But yeah, I guess part of the Lannister feeling on this was she was also really favoring her own family a bit, and they were a little threatened by that. Certainly, that's what Tywin didn't like that part. Not sure how much yeah, threat. Yeah, I mean, really it's were, ironic but. given that Tywin promoted the same phenomenon, you know, with his daughter and Robert Baratheon. It's like, was Ellen doing something beyond the bounds, or was this just what? what an ambitious in-law does. Mm, yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> That's true. I mean, and, and we also have to consider that the Reigns and Lannisters have probably intermarried so many times before that, too. This was probably a long running. Like, they're the number two house in the West. Like, it was number two marrying number one. It's kind of like a lot of other regions where the number two and number one either get along or don't. Like, in, the, in Dorne, Ironwood and Martell have kind of been fighting a lot. But even in current times, there was you know, in the last hundred years or so until the Red Vipers incident, there was, I mean, Quentin was fostered with the Ironwood. So clearly things were going, going a lot better, even though that was part of, because of Oberyn's thing. So <laughs> still, mm-hmm. still, it's an improvement of, of, the, of the status quo. But this is the, an example of the status quo turning very sour and getting very bloody later. But like I said, we'll, we'll talk in more detail about the reigns of Castamere later. But as you can see, it is very well set up here. I don't know about very well, but <laughs> it was set up here. <laughs> Badly set up here. <laughs> Let's divert for a moment to talk about a historical parallel, meaning a real-world historical parallel. The famous king of England, Richard the Lionheart, was also killed in a fairly meaningless siege with a outcome that was basically predetermined. The castle where it happened wasn't super important. The, the event itself wasn't that important, but the fact that he died was extremely important. Richard, too, was a warrior king and had a shaky succession succession situation, didn't he? You, you know a few things about this, don't you? Yeah, I mean, Richard had no sons. Yeah. Now, folks, so, if you don't remember, folks, the guy who preceded or who came after Richard the Lionheart was the infamous King John, the one featured in the Robin Hood stories, the one who was voted one of the worst Britons of all time. <laughs> I personally think there it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he was terrible. <laughs> he was terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially, you know, with the case of Richard, 
He was besieging a castle that was practically unarmored. Yeah. Yeah, apparently there's a story about the guy who shot him with the crossbow bolt was one of the only two knights in the whole castle, and he was using a frying pan as part of his armor because, like you said, they had so little time to prepare. Richard got there so quickly, they weren't ready for it, and they didn't maybe didn't even think he was coming. And there's another parallel here. Uh, Richard said, don't kill the guy that shot me. You know, he saw it coming. He saw them being vicious towards this castle. And he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. The, the crossbow boat didn't kill him. The, the infection did. But it was pretty quick. So it didn't instantly kill him like it was with Makar. So instead of... So he's sort of playing the role of Aegon here, but in reverse. Aegon saying, don't kill them. But in this case, the person saying, don't kill them, dies. And no one listens. So the guy who yeah. shot Richard, apparently, despite Richard's pardon, was flayed alive and then hanged by Richard's mercenary captain. That is a bad way to go. That is, you really, it's hard to imagine worse. Yeah. So that's bad. And that reminds us of that. So I imagine George took some real world, some inspiration from that event. Let's move on. Of course, we've also referred in the past a few times, it's worth comparing as well, the, the peak uprising to the Jacobite rebellions, as Nina points out aptly, uh, particularly in 1689 and 1715. The, in 1715, pro-Jacobite landowners and aristocrats attempted to raise the standard of the Jacobite claimants, James II and Seventh, and the so-styled James III and Eighth, respectively. This gets confusing with all the titles. As confusing as Aegon's and Daron's are, it's, the real world is worse. Although neither rebellion actually really featured the Jacobite claimants, people were fighting sort of in their names. Uh, I, I'm not super well versed on the Jacobite rebellions. I know Nina very well is, but I think you know a few things about them as well. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the Jacobites, I think, work as a good parallel for the Blackfires because they're kings over the water. Yeah. Mm. Um, they're this multiple generation lasting threat to the Hanoverians. Mm. And there were multiple Jacobite risings. There was one in 1715. There was one in 1719. There was one in 1745. So you're seeing the threat span decades. Yeah, so people, I think some people in the in the real world, who uh, real readers have questioned the, the, uh, the, realism of the black fires happening over such a large span but hey we've got it right here in the real world so hard to say that's unrealistic given that it's happened in the real world to, to a similar degree at least so let's talk about parallels to a song of ice and fire this i think might be one of the most fun parts of the episode so if you've stuck with us this long well perhaps you're in from for some extra payoff let's just run through a couple of quick parallels of stannis and makar and then steven i want to throw it over to you because i know you've got a couple of cool ideas that I've heard you talk about in the past or what you have sort of envisioned for Stannis' ending. And they're pretty similar to what I have envisioned. And there's a lot of parallel. And in those envisionings, I see a lot of similarities to what's happened with Makar here. So first, let me list off these, these basics. Y'all have heard some of these before, but let's, uh, let's prime ourselves, kind of get this to the front of our memories again. So we've got basic similarities like physicality. Stannis is really tall. Of course, he's become thin because of the the baby shadow babying, but he's a big dude. Don't think of TV Stannis. Book Stannis is six foot four, large. Ditto Makar. Both of them killed their own brother in a sense, as we said. Both of them successful in battle. Both of them have a sort of a literary trope: child, a dreamer son versus a daughter with a dreamer fool. You know, they've got these 
prophetic children or a daughter that has a prophetic sidekick. Uh, the, the weather thing that we talked about, that's huge. The long summer versus cruel winter. Bloodraven versus Melisandre as their sort of advisor or the, the bird on their shoulder kind of character. Uh, the disease thing, Grey Plague, Out Plague, Outbreak in Old Town versus what's going on at the Wall with Shireen's Grayscale, which currently is nothing, but Val's warning shouldn't be ignored, and it sounds like a setup for something, let alone the Grayscale showing up with John Connington. Stannis never had as many children as Makar, but if Stannis dies in the midst of his army, who the heck takes over? It's sim- going to be a similar level of chaos, like, well, who's in charge now? It's not going to be Shireen. They're not going to follow her, not in combat. They may crown her. They may kneel to her, but she's not going to start issuing orders in battle, especially because she's probably not even going to be there. And she may have already been burned by this point. She may already be dead. So, yeah. Anyway, and after the others are defeated, there may be a great council again in A Song of Ice and Fire, and it might even end up with something like Storm's End going to Gendry, like finding a descendant of the Baratheons who's still out there, kind of like how they had to do here. Who's a Targaryen that we can give the throne to? All right, so that was a lot of setup. Take it away, Stephen. What do you think about Stannis's end or anything else that I just laid out there? Any other parallels you want to throw out? You feel free. I mean, I think Stannis's end in the books is going to be different from the show. Yeah, same. Let me, Very different, let me yeah. put it no. diplomatically. I think he's definitely not going to kill Shireen for, you know, for a momentary battlefield advantage. Yeah. I think he feels that he's got the war side pretty much in hand. I think he wins the battle against the Boltons and takes Winterfell, but then Winterfell is besieged Mm. by the others. Yeah. And it's a replay of uh, the Siege of Storm's End. He's prepared for this. He's done this before. Yeah. Yeah, he's done this before, but it's also a thing that forces moral decisions on him the same way that he was he was forced to you know whether to execute people or eat the dead in the siege of storm's end yeah i think he'll be pushed by melisandre to burn shireen to wake stone dragons from winterfell yeah so what i'm suggesting perhaps is a little bit of the inverse we have winter at its <laughs> peak haha <laughs> and a a siege in winter instead of the king being on the outside trying to get in we have the king on the inside king on the trying inside. to hold out yes yeah, so we kind of have that in reverse also by the way I, I almost forgot to mention Nina put this in our notes here Makar is the great great grandfather of Stannis so let's not forget that they are also related <laughs> another piece of evidence that Stannis will end up in Winterfell that's come along since the last time you and I talked about this theory which I strongly agree with the 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 basic parameters of is that we have these scenes in Fire and Blood where there's a very Stannis-like Alaric Stark having discussions with, you know, who's mad about how his brother died and is having discussions with the Sansa paralleled Alisanne, you know, and it just feels like this, something like this could happen. Um, I don't know, maybe. So definitely agree with the, the general idea here. Well, just, it's maybe it's a little off topic, but what do you think? Do you think? Um, how do you think the night for it will play into any of this, or will it? Not um, really? <laughs> if I had to guess, it's the night fort that where the breach in the wall will be. Mm, okay, that makes some sense. Yeah, 
one perhaps last parallel between Stannis and Shireen and Makar here as well would be that uh, Stannis may lose support for burning Shireen. I would guess that his a lot of his followers won't be happy about that, especially Davos. If Davos finds out about it in you know in any timely manner, he may not find out till it's well past. But regardless, Makar doesn't burn his own daughter or anything that we know of. I can't imagine he did, really. That would have probably not escaped the history books. But he does, his own family does burn to death much later at Summerhall. So it's maybe a stretch to connect those two events. But still, it's, uh, it works mm-hmm. as a little bit of a parallel. But what do you figure, uh, have you, do you have any theories or ideas or things that have popped in your head as to how Stannis actually dies? Uh, <laughs> given this as a clue, like Makar's death, maybe not a rock dropped on his head, but something kind of sudden, uh, something kind of out of, you know, like unexpected, not just like a heroic last stand or anything like that, maybe. He could die in the siege. He could die at the hands of um, Daenerys, Mm. right? She is a slayer of lies. If Stannis dies and there's chaos, that could be where the Sansa stuff comes into it. She might be the one that takes charge. Like, it's going to be hard for Stannis to to really run anything at all if Stannis is in her castle and his big personality and all his troops everywhere. I mean, he's not going to just take Winterfell from her, but it's going to be like when he was at the Wall, where he's going to throw his weight around with Jon and be like, give me this, give me that. We're all going to die if you don't. You know, and Winterfell isn't exactly used to being run by a woman, so that might take a little time to develop. I do see it developing, but that's part of why I brought up this Alaric Alisande stuff, because I think that might be Germain, uh, there might be a yeah, lot of parallels. So yeah, I I like the idea of Stannis dying suddenly. I don't like it, but I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of like a narrative device to have. Because like, who is Stannis the second in command right now in the field? Godry the Giants? Like, does he even have one? <laughs> like, is it that? Like, <laughs> I can't identify. Yeah, Stannis hasn't really elevated anyone to be that of that position since he got rid of the Florence. Yeah. So it's a real, there is a real leadership vacuum problem that is looming over this situation that's very similar to what happened with Makar. Like we said, when Makar died, Roger Rain was able to get away with slaughtering Seven Peaks because no one could say no to him. Uh, Who's going to say no to, I don't know what would happen. There's not going to be a bunch of people running wild in that kind of scenario if Stannis is dead in in, in a similar situation because they're going to all be, it's going to be more like panic. Like, oh my God. Our leader's dead. The others are coming. Like, what the hell are we going to do? So that'd be my, more of the, the fear type of like leader, the leadership to manage that massive amount of fear and anxiety and every, everyone's afraid they're going to die, which is maybe the way the peaks felt <laughs> in that moment. And like, oh my God, they're all going to kill us because of what our, because we killed the king, you know, something like that. So a lot of the same ideas kind of presented in a different order, maybe one from different characters, different perspectives. But it fits darn well. I kind of skipped over, just mentioned it. But what do you think about the uh, what do you think about the grayscale stuff at the in the north? I'm I'm so torn on that. I I think it's a red herring. Okay, you think it'll matter in the south though, with John Connington? Um, maybe not. Not in terms uh, of like a plague thing, but in terms of like. Do you think the whole thing is a red herring? Is that what you're saying? A gray herring. Yeah, that's kind a of my, my feeling. <laughs> 
Huh. Okay. Yeah. I know that's not an unpopular opinion. I think, I think, you know, a few other uh, people we've had as guests, the people that I respect their opinions of have said that. And, you know, a lot of people have that opinion, really. I tend to fall the, on the other way on it, but obviously we'll just have to wait and see. Certainly the show made it look like it wasn't a big deal, but obviously we're not going to go by the show. <laughs> um, okay. What else do we have here? Yeah, I wonder too. Like the the whole northern leadership situation. If Stannis is able to, if the if the North if they break through at the night fort, let's go back to that for a second. They break through at the night fort. They make their way through and they start to f- flood the North. I guess they would probably. It's it's interesting to consider the others' level of intelligence. Like how smart are they? Are they going to go straight for Winterfell? Or are they going to slowly just? encompass the north slowly moving south just from coast to coast i've never i haven't honestly given it a lot of thought other than worrying about places like white harbor where there's giant population centers and if they do go to white harbor oh boy that's really bad um do you think the others get stopped at winterfell or do you think they get farther south? yeah you do okay i think winterfell is the place for like it's it's crafted to be the place where the the final confrontation happens okay so like everything about it yeah it's the place with the the hot springs where they can hold out it's the the name it's uh (laughs) it's got the history it's got the crypts in it where things can come alive if they want to go that route maybe different ways in that people don't know about uh brand's home all the setup from winterfell at the beginning yeah there is a lot to suggest that again um the show as well Uh, (laughs) but yeah, I, I I go back and forth on that, you know. So so, how do you reconcile that line with Danny's vision of melting an army of ice at the Trident? Because that's one that I struggle with. I'm not sure how to reconcile those two. I think that one is more metaphorical than okay than literal. Could it be referring to Starks? No, I I don't think she's going to fight at the Trident. Okay. I think it's more that just the major image she has of a battle at that time in her life is the battle for the Trident. Okay. Yeah. So it's just what she imagines. Yeah, that's a it, it's a whole other topic, but just to tease it, maybe to talk about the fact that the Starks do sort of represent unchanging, uh, like st- stasis, and that's a very well mm. explained by the concept of ice. Like things stay frozen. Like the Starks have been in charge for so long; it's been the same. Like no other region has that kind of through line of stability, yet that stability has also held them back. Uh, the North, people like the North uh, for a lot of honor reasons and things that have happened during the story, but it's also a more vicious, brutal place. It's more, it's probably worse towards women in a lot of ways, if not more ways. So there's a lot of things that North is really backwards about, and that might be part of what is being expressed here, that it needs to be melted a bit and broken down a bit. Pretty meta for this episode to bring that up, but I think it's, you know, it's a good topic. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I think if the Starks end up being somewhat resistant to Daenerys, you know, and that becomes a whole political conflict. Yeah. I could see that happening. Yeah, I wonder if there's a little something to be said about John in this because John, you know, John is obviously going to find out he's a Targaryen. People are going to find out he's a Targaryen. But ultimately, I, I imagine you would agree with me and a lot of fans who say that John is still going to ultimately be a Stark in attitude. And it was his upbringing. 
that's the that's the kind of person he is, and that's he's going to go more towards that side of things. Uh, so we have a character that's a Stark Targaryen that's going to lean Stark. Well, there isn't necessarily the opposite. I mean, there isn't some other John identical twin who has you know who's going to lean the other way. So I don't know, I, I kind of think about that, and I kind of come up empty with that one. But I think it's an interesting line of thinking. Maybe just something that George has in the back of his mind, or maybe it's in a, a thread that he decided not to pursue. I don't know, but it's pretty, pretty interesting. Okay. Well, I guess we can start to wrap things up. Um, we uh, okay. got through this pretty well. A lot of great theories, a lot of great ideas. I'm curious to see. We're going to have to take a look back at this when the Winds of Winter comes out and see how some of these parallels lined up and see if it was uh, kind of what we thought. Or if, Surely there'll be some big surprises. I imagine we're going to be like, yep, saw that one coming, though. And a few spots will be nodding our heads like, yep, <laughs> that's what we said. <laughs> but they'll, like I said, there'll be a lot of huge surprises, too. How does this plot line, like the Stannis in the North plot line, like rank rank for you in terms of things you're like most excited for? Is it like the top or kind of in the middle? Or it, is it? Do you have a favorite plot line? Just because I've I've made a fairly bold prediction as to how I think it's going to happen. Okay. So I want to see whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> right on. Yeah, that does that does add a little level extra to it. Like you've got a little. Sort of like having a wager on it, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, yeah. I'm I'm super excited for it too because the North is where we have... Uh, right now, we've been working on a brand in the Builder episode and that just gets really deep into ancient North stuff. That's kind of why my mind is on these like Stark as a whole concept. Um, what does Brandon the current have to do with Brandon the Builder and what is you know Brandon the Rebuilder concepts like that, like all the stuff that comes after the Long Night. So it's pretty pretty interesting to think about how Stannis slash Makar, his his uh, predecessor, for lack of a better term, his ancestor, played things similarly. So it also serves as a nice parallel. You got one of those happening in the far north, the other one happening in the far south. So there's a little bit of location uh, parallelism going on there too. Okay, so Stephen, what is uh, what's coming up next for you? What are you you working on? You just finished uh, Purple Wedding, so I guess on, you just got the next chapter. Uh, Sense of five. Cool. Now, which one is Sansa Five? That's that's her the one away? where uh, her escape from King's Landing. Yeah. Okay. So the big she gets the big reveal that uh, Littlefinger is there, and um, she gets to see Dantos get shot in front of her because he's not mm-hmm. very bright. <laughs> cool. Well, let's um, give you a big thanks. Appreciate you coming on the show again. It's always a great time My chatting pleasure. with you. And we'll uh, we'll have you back on another time when we maybe have another related topic or when we have something like this to circle back to discuss. Maybe we'll have, if, if not during the winds of winter, then something sooner. Uh, yeah, so thanks to everyone who came to uh, watch this live stream. Um, we'll, like I said, we'll have another one in a couple weeks with another giveaway. We'll be getting back to regular Sunday live streams in January with the World of Ice and Fire. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, thanks to Nina for the notes. We used quite a few of them this time. Some good questions and some good theories laid out that we were able to play with. Thank you to our mods over on our Facebook group, History of Westeros Facebook group. Pretty active spot if you want to get involved. Lots of discussions. Oh, look at that. We got Super Chat from Here Be Dragons. Can't wait to rewatch. Wish I could stick around, but got to get ready for my stream. Love the new look. Steven. Uh, Steven from Steven. There we go. <laughs> 
Steven Stark, Steven Atwell. How nice. Uh, Here Be Dragons is starting at 6 the new Eastern. Book, by the way, is that Steven's beard is mighty white. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Steven, I can't see you. I don't yeah, know. he can't see yeah. you. But if anyone who's listening is wondering, well, what on earth could this be? It's like he has a snow, he's a snow white little little goatee beard. That sounds like a good look. You got a little, yeah. little, little snowman going, a little snow beard going, huh? Mm-hmm. King Steven Snowbird. That's cool. Also, shout out to those of you who uh, interact with us on uh, Discord or any of the other spots that we get going. Discord's rising as our most popular spot for hanging out besides Facebook. Uh, thanks as well to Michael Clarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox.de. He has a new short film out called Hunger. Uh, it's a, a spoof on uh, the murder mystery genre. Um, instead of a murder, it's a stolen sandwich. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Check it out. Uh, we'll we'll post links in our social media outlets so you can check it out. On come find the link over on Facebook or just go to Michael's Twitter or uh, ask him directly. Go to Claradox.de. Uh, find it for yourself as well as all his maps and great stuff there. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reedus music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular. History of Westeros music. Thanks to the Benjineer for his audio quality assistance. Uh, here be dragons who the Stephen to Stephen comment. They are starting at six, like I said. They're they're gonna take on what we do in the shadows. Season one, season three of what we do in the shadows just came out. Shay and I are a big fan of that show, so I highly recommend that you watch that show if you haven't. Yeah, and if you va- have, check out Stephen. Yeah, it's a vampire mockumentary on yeah. FX. It's damn funny. funny. Have you watched it? What we do in the shadows, Stephen? Um, I've watched bits and pieces. Okay, cool. Yeah. Highly recommended. Good stuff for everybody else who haven't checked it out. And me and Ashea are going to be in Worldcon for, uh, or in DC for Worldcon in December. Worldcon isn't usually in December, but it is this year for reasons you can probably figure out that rhyme with mandemic uh, or Ovid. So um, if you're going to be there, let us know. It's going to be fun. Um, probably smaller than usual, but lots of great panels. And uh, yeah, you can we'll come be, say hi to us. Yeah, we'll be taking it pretty easy. But there are some nice authors that will be there, like Rebecca Roanhorse and Shannon Chakaborty, Rebecca Kwong. Um, so it should be a good time. Yep. So if you're in the area, especially if you're attending the con, reach out to us, westroshistory at gmail.com, or join us on Discord or Facebook and hit us up there. Uh, keep uh, keep a lookout within the next few weeks. We'll be dropping not only our Brandon the Builder episode, but an episode on Valerian. And we will be also releasing a patrons-only episode on Johanna Lannister. Not Joanna Lannister, Johanna Lannister, meaning the one who stood up to the Red Kraken. And that is a companion episode to our already released Red Kraken episode with Radio Westeros, which is available for patrons only. Or if you sent a donation, you can get it that way. That also gives you access to all of our other bonus episodes. That include the episode on Gogasos, the City of Blood Magic, and uh, some other chapter-ish episodes and some other ones that are escaping my mind at the moment. But our bonus episode catalog is growing all the time, and the price to get them remains the same for now. We're going to increase it at some point, but for now, you can get it at the same price it always is, which is... I believe the lowest is $2 a month. So that's pretty good. Lots of bonus episodes for $2 a month. Get on that if you're so inclined. If not, that's cool too. We'll see you next time for more History of Westeros. You know what to do. Valar, re-reads.